Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to a very special episode of Public Access America. My name is Jason, and in a few moments we will be joined by my friend Dan. Dan works in infectious disease, and he is knowledgeable on the subject of the coronavirus, COVID, and the vaccines being developed and created. And that is what I wanted to know more about. It's our ignorance in the study of the vaccines, the use of the vaccines, and the development of the vaccines that creates misinformation and and trepidation when it comes to knowing and taking a vaccine that could save the lives of not only you, your family, your friends, but everybody in America right now. It's important that we have this information. Now, these opinions are our own, and I urge you to do more research. Luckily, in this conversation, my friend Dan has told you about some places that you can go to get useful information that is written in a way that we, the American people, the average American, can understand. Dan is a great guy, and I hope that this is helpful. But ahead of that, I do want to urge you to do your own research. And thank you for listening. You can visit more of Public Access America on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or any podcatcher at Public Access America. And you can follow Public Access America on Twitter at Public Access Pod. Thank you. We're going to get to the interview right after this theme song. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit... I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10... We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. Every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, I believed them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believed them. Children being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. I believe them. And you can change the entire population of the world, eight billion people. And if you're gonna figure out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen, and here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong. I feel extremely lucky to, to be here with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country. There were 329 uprisings, 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fannie had any control over that. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and fighting our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? 
Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless us. And may God bless us. All right. So, hey, Dan, thank you for visiting. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm happy to have you here, too. I just want to say Dan is my friend. He works in infectious disease. And um, again, as we said in the beginning, the words are not endorsed by anybody. This is just information that I personally thought was needed to be out there. And Dan is somebody with one of those educated minds that I always turn to in times like this. And I wanted to talk to Dan about these these vaccines that are coming out. So but the first one, the coronavirus vaccine developed by the University of Oxford, it appears safe and triggers an immune response. The trials were involving over a thousand people. They showed the injection led to the patients, the, the candidates, the people in the trial, <laughs> making antibodies and T cells that can fight the coronavirus. And this seems so quick for, for a development of a vaccine. And with people so weary of actual science, I was hoping Dan here could help explain just how this particular vaccine got a jump and a head start just to get to a workable vaccine. Yeah, of course. Well, first of all, I'm just so grateful that you would have me on the show to talk about something that's so important. I mean, like you said, people are getting weary of the science. People are getting just tired of the pandemic. And it's important to make sure that we are balancing, uh, giving good information with being respectful of people just wanting to sometimes turn off the news a little bit. So with that in mind, I'm, I'm happy to offer some thoughts. So so first of all, the Oxford team that has developed the vaccine uh, is one of many different teams uh, across the world that's developing different vaccines. Uh, but that team in Oxford is led by an individual. Uh, she has been very heavily involved in vaccine research for a long time. Uh, including work on uh, other types of diseases caused by coronaviruses. So coronaviruses are a class or a family of viruses where you could kind of compare them to like, well, big cats are like one big family, like lions and tigers. And, you know, the, they're in, we think of them in the same kind of groups in terms of the tree of life. And so there's other types of coronaviruses that cause really severe disease, like SARS from the early 2000s. Um, there's also one called the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, which is a very deadly virus, but doesn't seem to be, to be able to spread so well. And so uh, she and others have been working on vaccines for these other diseases, as well as other types of viral diseases caused by uh, viruses that are not coronaviruses. So when the need for a coronavirus type vaccine came out uh, on the global scale, they were really ahead of the curve because they had done a lot of the science to be kind of prepared for this work. And so, yeah, the, the, they got, uh, they did a trial of over a thousand people, uh, which is a, a good sized trial for early stage. Um, but obviously before sending everything out to the rest of the world, there's going to be some additional stages where things like steadily uh, increase in terms of uh, the number of people, the the amount of detail that goes into how protective the vaccine is. Uh, so there's still a long way to go, but that this team definitely had a, a jump start because of all the work and all the expertise they had before the start of the pandemic. Okay, so then we shouldn't really be concerned with the size of this initial trial. There'll be more trials with more people, you're saying? Yeah, so most clinical trials are in multiple phases where the early phases are, uh, and it varies country to country, right? But the early phases are, are mostly focused on 
whether or not they just do the basics of what they're supposed to and whether or not they're safe um, at the, in a small group. And then there's additional trials of the same vaccine or the same drug uh, or the same medical device, depending on what you're trying to test, that involve uh, more people, uh, more a more prolonged period of time, and then a much more detailed scrutiny of how effective it is at preventing the disease of, of interest as well as the safety. So it's not just, you know, we looked at a thousand people, it's great, let's license it. There are orders being placed for the vaccine already, but this is preemptive. There are going to be more trials uh, down, the, down the pipe, not just for this vaccine, but for other types of vaccines that have shown promise. That's great. So this is actually kind of a large trial when you think about it. Yeah, well, the first the first stage is, is a pretty good size for an early stage trial, but it's it's a thousand. You definitely do not only test a vaccine on a thousand people before licensing it. There's a there are going to be a right. lot more people that are going to be participating in the study before any kind of final announcements are made. So I understand right. people's worries about you know new vaccines. There's always questions about vaccines in general, but also for COVID, um, there is a lot of safety that is being adhered to despite the fact that there is a rapid urgent need. You know, there, there's people are like, there is some condensing of the process, um, but sure. uh, there's, there's definitely, what's the point of making a vaccine that's going to be damaging or harmful that nobody wants that, least of all the people who make the vaccine because they end up losing money, right? So, right. you know, it's, it's important. I think a lot of people worry about vaccines is like, well, these pharmaceutical companies make lots and lots of money to do something that doesn't really work. Uh, well, if it really didn't work, eventually people find out and then those companies go bust or they lose lots and lots of money. So it's it's in their best interest to put out a product that is safe and effective as quickly as possible. So it's important to balance that. Sure. And I, I think it's important to specify that this is a vaccine that's being retrofitted. So 90% of what they would normally do trials on with animals and bigger animals and people that that's already happened long before Corona's ever was entered into the this strain of Corona was ever entered into the world. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much right. I I would say that um, they were testing other types of they were using this came kind of like molecular platform for a virus for a viral vaccine. Um, uh, right. beforehand but they just had they had to like uh, pull some strings but because they had already had a lot of their platforms in place like you said a lot of their their systems are ready to go they could kind of plug and play a lot faster um, but right. that does not but you even when you when you make a, a molecular change to the, the type of vaccine that they're making um, you can't just assume that everything before then is safe like you have to do a lot of work beforehand so yeah it's um it's it's because of the i i don't want to get too detailed in the biology of it but you know a, moving taking one gene out from one vaccine vector and moving something else back in it might seem like it's not a lot but i mean think of the, uh, how many different diseases that we have that are caused by the presence or absence of one gene or one mutation, right? You can't just, just make right. assumptions because of the, oh, I'm just only taking, making small part of the virus different or a small part of the vaccine different, right? That doesn't, that doesn't mean that it's going to be safe. Anything can happen. So, but they're, they are professionals at making these types of vaccines and have been doing it for years. Of course. And there's protocols I'm sure they'll have to follow. Everything eventually will be made public. So there's, that's not a concern. What's interesting to me is that it's said that this vaccine attacks on two different levels. It creates antibodies and T cells. And I was hoping you could elaborate on that because that's the kind of exciting um, that's kind of the exciting part of it. Right. Yeah. So I just, I want how, how 
how detailed do you want me to go? Because I can I can go and I can talk about like the molecular interactions of antibodies and B cells and T cells, or I can just kind of give a, br a broader overview. So I want to I want to make sure I'm I'm doing what you want me to do here. Sure. What is an antibody actually? Okay. Yeah. So I can I'll start at the basics, right? So um, our immune system. There's different like ways that we can kind of think about how our immune system works. And so there's what we call innate immunity, and then there's adaptive immunity. So innate immunity is just you have a number of cells and different organs in your body uh, that are just ready to go and give kind of a powerful but fairly generic response to when you get an infection. And these are, th these are things like if you get like a bacterial infection in like a cut or something, it's why you get inflammation, you feel red and puffy in that area. Like that's, a, that's an innate immune response in many ways. And there's, so there's, there's innate immune components to that, right? And for a vaccine, the most important thing is you don't want just to have an innate immune response. You want to have an adaptive immune response because an adaptive immune response is, as, it, as the name sounds, is much more tailored and long-term specifically for the, uh, uh, the pathogen, the, the, the agent causing the disease. Uh, so adaptive immunity is, uh, there's all kinds of different cells that are involved, um, but antibodies are produced by one type of cell uh, that uh, it takes time for antibodies to kind of mature and be, and be programmed. It takes a while from the, when you are exposed to a particular virus or bacteria for you to, your body to have the adaptive response to generate antibodies. Um, and then as part of, as part of that response as well, T cells are also, um, there are certain types of T cells that are specialized and amplified in your body over time during like a prolonged infection. And the whole point of a vaccine is that uh, if for a particularly dangerous virus or particularly dangerous bacteria, the amount of time that it takes for your body to generate an adaptive immune response could be many days to several weeks. And in that time, that disease could kill you or severely incapacitate you or hospitalize you. So the whole point of a vaccine is to kickstart that process by triggering an adaptive immune response before you actually get infected so that your immune system is already primed and ready to go. They've done the dress rehearsal so that everything goes off like clockwork when you do actually get exposed to the bacteria or, or virus. And so when, uh, when uh, you read articles like saying that there are antibodies that are produced, well, that's one type of adaptive immunity or one element of adaptive immunity. But if you're also seeing that there are T cells that are primed to be able to respond to this agent as well, that means that you're uh, not firing on all cylinders, but it means that you are having a very robust adaptive immune response. So if you were only having uh, seeing response from like the innate immune response, then that, that vaccine is probably not that good. But when you're seeing antibodies, T cells, and other types of um, adaptive immune response uh, after being uh, with, your, uh, with your vaccine, that is a very good sign for protection in the short term, but also protection in the long term, because adaptive immunity is linked to what we call immune memory, your ability of your immune system to remember a, vac a virus or a, a bacteria or something that was infected you many years or many months ago, and being able to still have that um, accelerated response. Does that kind of make sense? Oh, that totally makes sense. Yeah. I just think it's important with all the discussions of antibodies, we throw this word around as if everybody knows it, but the truth is, is people don't know what an antibody is. So I really appreciate you 
explaining that. Thank you. Yes, of course. I think I think more broadly, I think that a lot of infectious disease scientists and also like biological scientists and or biologists in general don't do nearly as much as they should. We don't, and this our failure to not have these discussions like proactively. Uh, I think I, I actually just saw a tweet uh, that just went viral a few hours ago from CNN where they were talking about another type of vaccine that is uh, based on a, 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 a type of molecule called messenger RNA or mRNA. And they mistakenly said in the tweet that the virus or, or that the uh, vaccine is mRNA and the mRNA is a type of cell. And mRNA is not a cell, it's a component of a cell. Long story short, details, details. But a lot of people on Twitter who had the science backgrounds reactively like ragged on, on CNN and were like, what the hell are you doing? You guys are idiots, you guys need to do better, rah, rah, rah. They all got really mad retroactively for this mistake. But what I noticed is that a lot of the people who are making those kinds of corrections are not taking the proactive step to say, you know, instead of just responding with anger when people get it wrong, invest the time to communicate with the public so that everyone gets it right. And so I think that's a, a, a fundamental failure of a lot of people in science. And I think we need to take a lot, uh, a longer look at ourselves and how science communication or the lack thereof might have contributed to how, where things stand are with the, pand with the pandemic right now. So, thank you. So, researchers at Columbia University Irving Medical Center have, they've isolated antibodies from several COVID-19 patients that to date are among the most potent in neutralizing the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The researchers have confirmed that their purified, strongly neutralizing antibodies provide significant protection from SARS-CoV-2 infection in hamsters, and they are planning further studies in, in other animals and people. Uh, sicker patients are actually the ones producing these antibodies, and I know you had said that antibodies need to mature and grow, and so I just wanted to get your uh, opinion on that, if we could discuss that. Yeah, it's it, that's pretty much it. So first of all, you were saying SARS-CoV-2 or SARS-CoV-2. That's actually the name that has been given to the type of virus that causes the disease that we're calling COVID-19. So, so, so SARS-CoV-2 stands for SARS coronavirus type 2. And SARS coronavirus type 1 is what caused the SARS pandemic in, in the early 2000s. Um, and it's, a, it's just a, it's a designation. Whereas COVID-19 technically is, is officially a term for the disease, for coronavirus disease identified in 2019. So when people talk about being diagnosed with COVID, that's the disease, whereas you don't really test positive for COVID, you test positive for the virus that causes COVID, which is SARS-CoV-2. So I think some of that terminology is important to, to, to make sure people have straight because um, like these, these terms are being thrown around by virologists who know the difference, but it, again, it's important for us to take the time to make sure that the public that is very much able to like understand all of this just gets the time to be able to explain this in a respectful and understanding way. So yeah, so SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, COVID-19 is the disease. Um, and then ask your question about antibodies, and that's, that's pretty much it, where it's not necessarily that be when you are sicker, you produce more antibodies. It's when you have a longer period of time when you are exposed to uh, the virus or any virus, not just coronavirus, but you know other types of viruses, influenza, measles, mumps, all these you know, smallpox, even though smallpox is mostly eradicated, um, you 
when, when these things happen, when you were exposed to these viruses, um, your immune system has a longer time to mature its response, right? So it's not just one, pro it's not just a one step where you, you're infected with the virus, the immune system says, oh, there's a virus, let's produce antibodies, right? There are several rounds of uh, steps that happen at the molecular level that kind of tailor make antibodies to be really, really good. Um, and there, it's the, the the biology gets you know very dense, but basically, um, not all antibodies are created equal, and not all antibodies created um, to bind or target a particular agent are created equal. So sicker patients might have more potent antibodies because those antibodies or the cells that produce those antibodies have had longer periods of time exposed to the virus. They have the immune system overall has had longer period of time exposed to the virus. And so the antibodies have had more time to mature to be really tailor-made and really specialized. Think of it like a, like a really quickly tailor-made suit. Like you can get, buy a suit off the rack from a department store and it fits decently well, if you send it to a tailor and you say you have 20 minutes, 30 minutes to tailor the suit, then it'll look a little bit better. But if you give that tailor two weeks and a lot of time, then that, that suit is gonna look really, really good at the end. It's gonna be perfectly fitted to your body like in the right way that exactly you want it, right? So it's really just that using that tailor analogy is exactly what happens at the, at the, at the immune response level. Sure. The longer the longer it fights, the stronger a warrior the, the it becomes. Yeah, more or less, and that's at the immune system level. And so, antibodies themselves are not sentient; they're just very large types of proteins that are produced by cells. But the way that the proteins of antibodies are produced uh, at the, like the the immune system level you're eventually gonna get antibodies that are better tailored over time and those are going to become more, more prevalent. They're gonna be more antibodies over time if you have a longer period of exposure and, and more time for the immune system to respond. But that really just means that, that you're sicker. Yes, a, con yeah, a consequence of that is you're probably going to be sicker. Right, so now these antibodies, they attach themselves to the virus to prevent the virus from going in, from going into cells, is this right? That's what. I, could you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. So antibodies at the the the, and well, I'll say this: antibodies have a lot of different um, uh, roles uh, in the immune response, right? So um, antibodies are basically they look like. If you look at the the structure of them, they look like little Ys, like letter Ys. And so the 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 two stalks of the letter Y, each of those can bind to the surface of an infectious agent like a virus or bacteria. If the antibody is designed to be able to, or is designed to be able to bind specifically to that virus, and not all antibodies can just bind anywhere. Every antibody is pretty tailor made for a very specific response, a very specific agent. So the antibody can bind, and then. Um, uh, different types of immune cells can recognize the antibody being bound. Um, antibodies can also be involved in different molecular signaling pathways that actually stimulate an immune, an innate immune response as well. So yeah, the what they, so but the main point is that the antibody, uh, different antibodies will bind to the surface of the virus, the surface of the bacteria, or whatever is causing the disease, and then that winds up being like a trigger for a more detailed, more amplified. A more severe immune response that uh, that eradicates the virus or eradicates the bacteria. Gotcha. Now these next two questions kind of 
go simultaneously. There's a certain segment of the population that suggests that allowing the COVID virus to run its course will lead to herd immunity and that, and that we just have to live with it. And that doesn't seem to make sense to me. But polls, recent polls say that 51% of Americans are weary of the 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 vaccine itself as well as the information coming out i just don't i don't have any enough information to dispute this so i was really hoping to get your your help explaining this uh yeah so i think herd immunity the the concept is is a little bit abstract where you wind up talking about the difference between an individual person's likelihood of getting infected versus the population's probability of having a lump, large number of people infected. And, you know, mathematically, those are slightly different things. And, you know, it, that's where the kind of discussion on herd immunity gets mixed up. But what I will say about herd immunity is generally it's, it's a term that infectious disease scientists use to, to th think about, like, what percent of the population needs to be immune to a particular virus or bacterial infection so that it doesn't the infection does not run rampant in the entire population and so what happens is when you have a larger component a larger percentage of the, the whole herd like a herd of animals or the, the whole population when you have a larger percentage of, of that herd that has some kind of immunity it's less likely for the virus to run rampant but if you have less if you have lower herd immunity then the virus, say, is more likely to not just infect the people who don't have immunity, but also cause a severe enough outbreak where it actually might start infecting people who might have some immunity as well. So it's kind of like a, it's, it's the, the, the how many weak links do you want in the chain in terms of immunology? Do you want the fewest possible weak links? But the more weak links you have, the more likely the chain is to fall apart. With a new disease, herd immunity is just unrealistic without a vaccine. Then. Yes, generally speaking, yes, because the whole point of a vaccine, like I said, is to give everybody the immune response early on, the kind of the immune system dress rehearsal without getting sick. And so when you, the what I can understand where people are like, oh, I know about herd immunity is a thing. If we just want herd immunity to happen, just let it happen. Um, it breaks down in practice when you have to deal with the people who are sick and dying from COVID. Um, if this was the common cold, where very, very, very few people um, die from the common cold each year, even though millions of people get infected in the United States, there's not much point to getting a vaccine because people will get sick, you'll cough for a couple of days, and as long as you don't have a very severe immune system disorder, you should be just fine, um, or, or other types of, of, of health, uh, health complications uh, that are really severe. So if the, the disease will run its course throughout the population, then everyone gets immune, and then you just kind of move on because it's the end of cold season. But coronavirus, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 is a much deadlier disease uh, than, than the common cold and even most strains of flu. And so in order to get the herd immunity, you need to basically sacrifice a lot of people. You know, you have to let a lot of people get sick. A lot of people need to be at the point where they need to be hospitalized or they'll die or they just die. And so you could have herd immunity. That's something you could do totally go for. But then your hospitals would be completely and utterly overrun. Um, your death toll would be pretty catastrophic. Like right now, the, the total number of deaths, uh, uh, the total number of cases, people who've had coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 in the United States is about 4 million. We're a population of more than 350 million. 
Now, if we if if the estimates of even like one to two percent mortality of the virus, if we let 350 million people get infected with the virus, then we're talking at least three million, if not many more people who are going to die. And also, way before then, our hospital capacity will be overrun. And so the people who go into the hospital get treated and survive and get discharged. A lot of those people would wouldn't have access to the hospital, so the hospitalization, so the death rates would actually increase because the virus is it can be equally as severe an infection, but you you don't get the t the care that you need because uh, to, to stop yourself from dying because all the the hospital beds are filled. So that's where the immune that's where the herd immunity argument kind of breaks down, and the vaccine is a way to kickstart all of that, give everybody the immunity before. The healthcare system collapses, and before everybody just gets really sick. Yes, exactly. And that brings me to this 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 question because I keep hearing it, and it says the increase in testing is the reason that we're finding these higher case counts. And I I know that's patently incorrect, but I really want to get somebody on the record to explain why it is that we need to test and we need to test so thoroughly. Yeah, so the, the argument about, you know, oh, we're, we have more cases because we have more tests, it, it's, it's kind of a half comparison argument where the implication is that other countries are not testing as well as we are. And so because they're not testing as well as we are, they're not detecting as many people who have the virus. That's also just not true. Like we're in terms of we, we have we have done the most testing of any country in the world that we know of. But uh, my my introduction, my my intro to epidemiology professor, I'll never forget this. It's it's one of the most impactful things I've ever heard about infectious disease science. Is that epidemiology is all about denominators. Like when you talk about math, when you make a fraction, your numerator's on the top, your denominator's on the bottom, three fourths, seventy five percent, right? And the, the the point of that 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 applies here is that you can talk about raw numbers all you want, but what matters is rates. So if you have thirty million tests done. That sounds really impressive until you consider the population of 350 million. Then that's less than 10% of the population. And so when you want to compare different groups or different countries, you have to compare rates. And when, it, when you do that kind of math, the whole argument about we're doing more testing kind of breaks down. Um, so that, that part of it is, is not really that fair, but also the reason why we have to test so much is because the virus has gotten really far out of control <laughs> in the United States. Like compare South Korea, we surpassed the testing rate of South Korea weeks ago, but South Korea didn't need to do as much testing as we did because they were able to control the virus more quickly. And so they have their, their need to test a large, large pop, amounts of the population stopped much more quickly than we did. So they haven't needed to keep up with the rate of testing that we need. So when you, when you hear arguments about, oh, we have higher case counts because we're testing, no, we have higher testing because the virus is causing a much higher burden on our population than other countries. And then also you have to consider number versus rate. If you have a large number and you have a large population, the large number of tests is not nearly as impressive when you compare it to other countries. You have to normalize by population by doing the division, and that is all about the denominator. I love that. And I think it's important for early testing so that we can get to the people before they get to the hospital. 
I fully agree. The whole point about this proactive testing, like I live in a state where there's mandatory testing in uh, nursing homes, right? Because if you are able to, if you're able to catch maybe one or two cases early on when people are maybe not even knowing that they're feeling symptoms, or we also know that the virus, the, the COVID-19 um, disease, uh, you can test positive for the virus several days before you start showing symptoms. So proactive testing helps you identify the people who might go on and expose others so you control the spread of the disease. And also, if you test positive, then you can put them into an advanced level of healthcare where if they start having more severe symptoms, then their, then their care is not delayed and their prognosis for survival and being able to just not have a severe infection at, at all that is also better off. So yes, proactive testing saves people's lives, not just by helping us identify who has the virus um, and, and helping us like make sure that they get the care that they need, but also making sure that the people who have the virus don't expose other people so that the, the, way, the rate at which the virus spreads to others slows down a lot. So yes, proactive testing is really important and we don't really, you know, it's not really that impressive to talk about the numbers of tests and the rates of tests as opposed to the number of people who are hospitalized, the number of people who, are, who have died. In epidemiology and public health, we, we compare those as outputs versus outcomes. Like you have an output of millions of tests done. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've done a good job stopping the disease. That's one component of it. We care about the outcomes of how many people get sick, how many people die, yeah, and then the economic and socio-political uh, uh, effects of that. So think about uh, with a testing argument, if people are bragging about testing, think output versus outcome, number versus rate, the denominators. These are things that we need to talk about more, and these are things we talk about all the time in infectious disease epidemiology, but we don't really communicate well to the public. We really have to do a better job on our end proactively engaging so that when the next pandemic hits and you hear it here first, there will be another pandemic in our lifetimes and it will probably be worse than COVID-19. Like that's just the way it's going to be. When the next pandemic hits, we need to be prepared. And a, a large component of that is science communication, science outreach to explain these not easy to grasp concepts. Well, you're making it pretty easy to grasp. What I, I, what <laughs> I, what I like to imagine is if you've ever seen the Silence of the Lambs, Jodie Foster is, is fumbling around in the dark trying to find the killer. Now, if we imagine that Jodie Foster is scientists and, and Buffalo Bill is the corona, we can't really see it without, without something. And so tests let us know where the killer is. <laughs> yes, you need, to, you need to know what you absolutely, you hit it right on the head. You, we have to know where the virus is we need to know who's sick, who they might expose, who they have exposed. You can't answer any of those questions about testing, but more, but like more generally, like thinking about the long-term game, because eventually this pandemic will be over, and eventually we're going to have to be prepared for the next one, and life will continue, and we're going to have to play the long game of having scientists illuminate and 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 communicate these important concepts in a way that engages the public. And, and, and gets people caring without like, I feel like a scientist, science can be very elitist in many ways where you, uh, people are like, oh, you don't, you don't know this stuff. How dare you not know? It's like, well, well, you know it. So scientists, so why not explain it? Right? So I think that we need to, in the scientific community need to, you know, stop fumbling around in the dark about how to communicate 
in the long term as much as we do, if not more so than needing to improve COVID testing in the short term, because we need to think the long game as well. I, I don't want to go on, off on too much of a tangent, but I do, I do appreciate what you're doing. I want to say that there's a lot of information out there and we used to be able to trust the voices offering the information. And for some reason, we just can't now. And so people are turning to literal science journals for their information. And they just don't have the verbiage. And it's hard to learn when you don't have the terminology that these, that these journals are using. So I really do appreciate you breaking it down in more simple terms for us. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I think an, uh, we're starting to get the hang of it, I think, at least in infectious diseases and other types of science, where there are some pretty high impact journals, uh, scientific medical and medical journals that are now starting to modify their structure so that, um, for example, I think the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences or PNAS is a very, a very well read, widely read journal uh, that covers many different elements of science. Um, they have um, revised the way that they present uh, their journal so that there's a more plain language section for people who are not in the field of the science to be able to understand what broadly what was the motivation, what was the importance and what was done and what the impact in future directions are without having to know a lot of terminology. The journal Science is doing this. Um, eLife is another good journal that's doing this where they're trying to uh, make press releases in more plain language, right? And I think that's something that we need to highlight more as a, not just as, a, as something useful for the public, but as a skill set that we train in science so that you know, this, the next time that a pandemic hits, there's more of, uh, information available for the public to read and understand in a, in a more digestible way than just trying to go through medical journals and, and Googling lots of things and getting lost. And then a bunch of scientists saying, oh, how dare you try to do this so you have no background. Like, well, I don't blame people for wanting to know what's going on if they can't understand. I respect people for doing that. I do as well. So leaders at the CDC say that if every American simply wore a mask, the virus would be reduced enough for us to get control. Additionally, social distancing and hand washing would ensure the reduction further. Is this right? And, and would you suggest any other measures that could speed the reduction process because to me honestly i do not understand why people don't wear a mask and it, it i don't understand the arguments against it and i know you're a proponent for masks and social distancing and hand washing and i want to put this in every show because i think it's really important to get out there you need to wear a mask I just want, I, I need your help to explain to people why that's something that we need to do. It's, I mean, in infection prevention and infection control, um, there's a push now. We, we're starting to call it back to basics, right? We can have all these amazingly intricate different devices and antibiotics and antiviral drugs and vaccines and everything that can hopefully make an impact. But honestly, the, the, the basics of infection prevention, right? Covering your mouth when you cough or sneeze, wearing a mask for COVID-19, uh, washing your hands, distancing. These these sound really simple, and I think maybe some of the um, maybe some of the questioning about masking is like, well, why does it seem like it's such a simple solution? Why don't we have something that seems more complicated? I think I wonder if that's actually a component of it, right? These basics are basics because they work. They work really well, and um, the 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 literature has evolved on masking. Um, more science has come out on it. 
Um, there are some people who think that masking is not, uh, masking is certainly not infallible. It's not a perfect solution, right? It's, a, it's one component of it, but it, it, it is known to help. It is known to at least help with some of the, the large droplets from your mouth and nose that, have that can have virus in them, you stopping the spread from, other, from you to other people. Um, that works. Uh, washing your hands if, some, if the virus is on different surfaces, because the virus can survive on different surfaces for a fairly long period of time, especially like in bathrooms when people cough, sneeze, you know, wash your hands. In, the viruses do wet, much better in like wet environments than dry environments. And if you wash your hands with soap and water, use hand sanitizer. That stops you from not just, and from not the, maybe the direct contact of somebody sneezing or coughing into your face. But if the virus is on a surface, you touch it and then don't wash your hands and then touch your eyes, nose, or mouth and the virus gets into your body, right? Washing your hands frequently really works. And then the distancing, right? That's another element of it, like trying to keep your distance from people so that they don't talk or breathe or cough or sneeze these viruses from your body into you. Um, I think uh, specifically about wearing the mask, one of the most common like science-based arguments that people try to make is that, well, the virus, the size of the virus is really, really microscopic. And the, if you look at the, like, the thread counts on these masks, they're, um, they're much wider. Like the virus can definitely go right through them, right? And the people kind of use that as a ha gotcha moment that so masks can't work because of this, the, 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 the geometry of it. And then, so there must be another reason why these masks are being put in. And then that's where the substitution of like conspiracy theories, personal freedom, restrictions, all this other stuff comes in. And it comes because of a lack of communication on our end to explain how masks work. Masks do not, the viruses themselves don't just come out fully airborne, just like the small micro particles that they are. Right, viruses are in these droplets that are coughed out, sneezed out, and when you talk, or um, like sometimes you might occasionally say a, a P or a or a T, like really emphatically, and you see a little gob of spit go across the room. Right, like those are what have the most viruses in them. Right, some viruses can get through in really small droplets that aren't necessarily caught by all masks. But if you can stop those droplets from getting from out of your mouth into the environment or into someone else's face, then you're stopping the spread of the virus if you have the virus. The mask is that the adage is my mask protects you, your mask protects me, right? It's, um, you know, the surgical masks and the N95 respirators, those protect you, but the cloth masks protect other people. And so it's trying to think about that as well. But again, it's rooted in science communication in the absence of an effective message about how masking works people uh, make misjudgments about how they are supposed to work or are they not supposed to work. And then when we don't have an appropriate on the scientific side, when we don't have this discussion in a healthy way or in a proactive way, then that leaves a space in the communication wherein conspiracy theories and non-scientific arguments can kind of fill that gap. So yeah, I think yes, masks work, distancing works. Washing your hands work. It's the basics. They really are effective. They will control the spread of the virus. We have the data. We have the evidence to show this. And uh, it, it also comes down to science communication and science outreach and our job doing that. Okay. So the virus has to hitch a ride out of your body and it uses water droplets from inside of you to do that. And the water droplets can't get through the mask. Although the virus might be able to. Yes, and the, the overwhelming majority of the viruses are going to be in droplets that can be caught by the masks. No, and when we talk about, you know, I think some people, you also hear about the virus being airborne versus like droplet-borne or something. Air, 
airborne is is and I actually did uh, spend a good amount of time doing research on 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 uh, humidity and airborne viruses right um, air I wanted to ask you about that I live in Florida yeah right well <clears throat> actually yeah uh, the, the the small of the drug like uh, whether or not a virus is airborne or whether or not a bacteria is airborne there are very very few microbes bacteria viruses and the like that can survive truly on their own just floating raw through air most of them are in droplets that are really really small now some water droplets that are too small for us to see can float in the air for a long period of time and if the virus can survive in those really really small droplets then it can just disperse throughout the air then we tall call it airborne so truly airborne is like waterborne in a way that is in the air and then an airborne virus it can survive in the less harsh environment of a larger droplet but the, then gravity takes over, right? So a larger droplet can't really go and just be dispersed by like wind, like very faint air currents in out, outside or indoors. And so it, they fall to the ground. And so what we found is that the droplets that contain the largest quantities of, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the coronavirus, um, their distance from like mouth to ground maxes out at about six feet. Okay, I understand that. I, I do want to touch on this briefly, but I don't want to make a big, a big deal out of it. Uh, there's talk about reopening schools, and I just don't really see the desperation and need to do that at this moment. And I was wondering if you might have an opinion on that. Yeah, well, I I think, I think the argument was floated that um, the the transmission among school children has been really low. But that's there's a pretty obvious component to that argument that's missing, and the fact is most schools were not in session when the virus was spreading. So there weren't these massive outbreaks at school because the schools weren't open. And it kind of leads into what we sometimes call the paradox of prevention, right? It's, um, uh, you can, the more, better you are preventing a disease from spreading, the more people will question the methods of your prevention. Because if they don't see the, if they don't see the disease spreading, they're like, well, no, there's no longer a threat. So what's the point of doing all this? And then they, they stop doing the prevention and then sure enough, the, the disease comes roaring back. That's what happened when we uh, a, lot of, a lot of places across the country reopened too quickly. That's why we're having a surge in cases because people got tired of the prevention because they didn't think it was really working because they were thinking, well, the virus is no longer a threat, so we're good. And so that I worry that with schools reopening that the virus will spread through children um, and the argument that it doesn't is very heavily influenced by the fact that we had a prevention strategy in place that stopped it from doing so in the first place. No, it wasn't that we, we, it, the virus had the chance to do it and it did not do it. It's that the virus never had the chance in the first place. Um, and so, and, and yes, there's, um, we're not really, the, 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 the mortality and severe disease rates among children are fairly low, very low actually. Um, uh, but what's really worrying is that, first of all, the school teachers, the school administrators, the board, the school board members who are older, um, and also parent and parents and grandparents of those kids. That if the if the if the kid catches the virus, brings it home, then all of a sudden you have a very sick grandmother who's in a much worse situation than she should have. So it's not just about the kids; it's about the kids' families, the kids' um, uh, teachers. Uh, the other employees and employers of the school systems, right? It's it's it is something to be very worried about. But I think the silver lining is that um, uh, despite political discussions at a high level um, that are happening, without naming any names or any political groups, 
Um, I think the narrative that schools need to reopen is being pushed, but it looks like there's polling data coming out that shows that the overwhelming majority of Americans do not want schools to reopen in, in, the, uh, in, the, in like the way that is being suggested. So I think Americans are really aware of the fact that it's, it's, it's a concerning idea. Um, I think we just need to continue pushing the, the science-based message that it is a bad idea. You know, it is a bad idea for, for schools to just go back unfettered uh, without anything. Agreed. So that's my two cents on schools. Well, we just don't have a lot of information, and and there's there's information coming out that that this can affect children, a swelling of organs and such, and I just don't I don't think we know enough yet about that. Yeah, so the you're you're talking about the pediatric inflammatory syndrome, right? That that's 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 yeah, that's that's what's um that's been a new discovery. Uh, among the virus that unfortunately we really only had the chance to discover because the virus got out of hand enough for enough children to have it, right? It's a very rare condition, very rare, but very serious. Um, and the only reason why we're aware of it at a large scale is because the virus has gotten to a large scale. And uh, most, of the, most of the children who uh, get that disease are very, very young, like before school age or infants. So school age children in their like, you know, grade school and adolescence, they're not really at risk of that, but I mean, you want to talk about a vulnerable pop vulnerable population. What population is more vulnerable vulnerable than infants, right? We we ha if we can't protect our our newborn children, what are we doing as a, as a society? I agree. And when you think that the the South Korea study only really talks about children ages five or six to ten, and over ten spreads just like adults, we still have to be concerned, and especially Absolutely. when there's there's multiple children in a household there's younger there's older and we're all getting together i just i think as an individual parent you have to make your own decision it's sad to me that some parents have to rely on school for that but i really think that if people that don't need to send their children to school can avoid it will reduce the population that needs to go and we can work with a smaller number and i, I, I i'm hoping yeah. that people get that let, let, I won't. I won't disclose who my employer is, but I, I work. I work for uh, an entity that is very highly concerned about the prospect of schools reopening and colleges reopening in our area, and what that means. Because all the stuff that's been happening with COVID nineteen in our area is um, has happened minus tens of thousands of college students and minus tens of thousands of school children. So what happens when they literally just go right back into the mix? Oh, it's 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 going to be it's going to be turn. Um, I worry over the next few weeks, but um, I think the the one thing that we can all do is just do the little things, right? Wearing the mask, distancing, hand sanitizer, washing your hands. If you have symptoms of COVID, don't keep it to yourself. If you if the health if a health department calls you, pick up the phone because you might have been exposed as a contact. You need to be careful about that. Like, doing these little things right will do their part because, I mean. The, the the way the viruses spread, you know, they spread like wildfire. Like there's, there, it's not just spreading in one direction. You can spread to many people. Those many people can spread to many other people. And every one person that we identify who could spread the virus and make sure that they're doing everything right is saving dozens, if not hundreds of, of lives. And in fact, there was a study a couple months ago from South Korea where they traced back, and this is, this is before everything peaked. So it was like while the rates were still increasing, but it was a few weeks into their, their outbreak and they had identified one person, one person 
who had many, many close contacts, uh, did not mask, did not distance, did not do any uh, their job responsibly, and they traced back at that point something like a third of the infections from the, in the entire country back to exposures from that one person. Right, so one person can make an enormous difference in the futures of many. I think you just did, Dan. I understand people's worries. I understand people's fears. It's okay to, okay to be afraid. Continue to support one another. Continue to love one another. And and the best way that we can support and love one another right now, uh, is to do things: the masking, the distancing, and washing. We'll do it. We'll do it because you told us to. <laughs> I I hope I hope I don't have that much sway. I'm, I might be afraid of my own power at that point. So. Well, I heard you have a gun now, so we're going to do what you say. <laughs> well, I'm happy to do my part then. Thanks for being here, Dan. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And if there's any, if there's ever any questions or anything else, if any of your listeners or anything want to ask questions, I'm happy to do so through Jason. I, I just want to continue to be a resource for the listeners of the show and, and for you, Jason, because what you, you're doing to try and spread the good word of public health and sciences, it, it saves lives. It, this is as simple as that. So thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you. I hope so. I hope it. I hope it makes a difference. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright tonight, we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power. Stitcher Smart Radio app, Potable, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. Yes, yes, we will do, we that. Will do that. We will create, we will podcasts, create podcasts, podcasts such as Adam, such as has, Adam a beard has a Beard and the Denton, and the Denton County, County Collective. Collective.
the unsigned countdown, and we will set up podcasts in North Carolina, and Georgia, and Mississippi, and Florida, and Arizona, and Nevada, and Idaho, and Manchester, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, and we will bring the truth to the people, because the people will have a voice here. No longer will we be ignored. No longer will we be forced with policy after policy from an ever-changing network of politicians whose only goal it is is to make money, to continue to run, to continue to make money. They will listen to us. We are the people. We are America. We are Public Access America. That's who we That's are. Who we are. And if you didn't if know you we existed, existed, you might want to get on board. We want to hear from you. You want to hear from us? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.